Hi, I'm Daniel Budai, and this is the Ecom Show, a podcast where you can learn more about the world of high-performing e-commerce players and marketers. The show is brought to you by the team of Budai Media. Let's grow your e-commerce business together. Hello everyone, here is Daniel Budai with another episode of our Ecom show and today I'm here with Scott uh, Seward uh, from Adelaide, Australia. Hey Scott, how are you today? I'm very good, Daniel. How are you? I just woke up. <laughs> it's very early here. We have a huge time difference, I think, like 10 hours, 9 hours. Yeah, yeah, it's uh, well, 4, 4 p.m. here, so it's getting a bit later in the day. And I've, yeah. I've had an early start as well. I've been up since about 5, so it's been a long yeah. day. It's good. Nice. It's good. Nice. Um, yeah, so Scott has been in, uh, in this industry in digital marketing and, and e-commerce for a while. And... Uh, Today, I will ask him to share his story, but first, let's start not with digital marketing, but what, what's your background? So before e-commerce, now you have a huge agency with your partner, uh, Right Hook Digital, more than 80 people in the team now. Um, before e-commerce, I know you did affiliate. What, what did you do before? Oh, man, like if I go back to my 20s, I kind of wasted them, <laughs> to be honest. Um, I wouldn't say wasting, you know, it's, it's all a learning experience. But I, I dropped out of uni four times, you know, every time I went went to uni and tried to go down that path. It just something just never felt right about it. Like I always had that, I guess, that entrepreneurial drive. I just wasn't sure which direction to, to take it. And every time I, I got to uni... Um, and got there, I always felt like I was just heading down the path of being an employee, which just for me just never felt right in the direction I went, wanted to go. Um, and then the last time I was, I was actually living in Germany uh, and doing financial planning by correspondence. And I, I, I got into poker over there. It was like 2006 when there was a big poker boom. Um, I was playing a lot of live poker over there and then ended up just making more money from that than than doing anything else. So I ended up playing poker full-time online primarily for about three years and came back to Australia. Online games started getting really, really tough. You know, there were a lot of people, a lot of smart people who are good at maths and, and um, you know, just the, the game accelerated really hard and it, was, it just became a pretty, yeah. pretty tough gig. Um, and then there were also, you know, regulations uh, with, with poker were getting tougher in a lot of countries, Australia particularly. So I was sort of looking for other ways and there was a lot of people in the poker space who were, um, you know, on the affiliate marketing side, you know, they were driving driving people and getting commission. Um, so that's sort of where I first probably heard about affiliate marketing. Um, I, I was actually stood away from poker for a while and was concreting with my stepdad for, for about two years. And I was trying to, I was just in a bit of a phase of, figuring out what was next um, and affiliate marketing was on my radar so I was you know getting up at 4 30 in the morning pouring concrete during the day and then coming home at night and then just you know what it's like when you're in that absorbing information mode I was just trying to learn everything I could for probably a good 18 months and then finally got to a stage where I was making enough out of affiliate marketing to to step out eventually that sort of led to getting a job um as a marketing manager for an e-commerce brand, I just sort of kind of went in there and, and, and basically ripped shreds off their social media strategy and somehow landed a job. 
and that was really the start of my e-commerce journey and that was going back 10 years ago so I spent that that next three years in there really just trying to learn everything I could about the e-commerce model, not just the marketing side, but, you know, we were importing from Sony and Makita. We had two different business arms. One was Power Tool and one was uh, video games and just warehousing, logistics, uh, the financial side, and then obviously just leveling up on the marketing side. And just that, that was how I got into the space, which um, led to my own brand for a couple of years as well. And then then uh, Dee and I launching the agency back in 2017. Mm-hmm. Yeah, so I always ask this from uh, people who who are, who've been in e-commerce for a while. Um, how how is it now compared to back then, like ten years ago? Um, what are those things which are very different <laughs> nowadays, and which might change soon again? And what are those things? What is relatively the same, and and um, you think that it will be here? in the long term and, and it's important in the long term it's not really changing by time it's it's that's a really good question and it was actually a question we asked ourselves a lot at the beginning of this year with all the uh, apple ios 14 att rollout what's not going to change and you start coming back to that question and a lot of it's i mean apart from your fundamentals your marketing fundamentals you know your persuasion tactics uh, you know building customer relationships all these things are so important always have been um maybe lost a bit of focus with how easy Facebook made things over the last few years, but email marketing as well. Email marketing, you know, going back to when um, I was in that marketing manager function, the bulk of what we did at the time, because Facebook wasn't so much of a thing going back then, there was no pixel at the time. So it was still a lot of just right side ads and, and you know, looking at click costs and, and running things that way. But the bulk of what we were doing at the time from a traffic perspective, a lot of comparison shopping engines, Google Google shopping. Um, so a lot of data feed stuff. And we, in, with the context that this was with a couple of brands where we had you know, 800, 1,000 SKUs. So, so much of it was was um, data data feed driven. Um, so that was actually an area, you know, that I, I think has lost focus that is still really powerful for, for a lot of e-commerce brands that don't leverage those those platforms. Probably not leveraging A and, and Amazon and these, these platforms where you can control your costs a lot more. Um, really good places to start just to get some cash flow ticking over. And I think they're a really good thing. But email marketing at the time was, you know, list list for us was a, hu- a huge part of us driving profit. So, um, you know, as much as we're a paid traffic agency, you know, we're very heavy on email as well. So we definitely see the importance of that. And that's that's not going anywhere any, anywhere fast. Yeah. So email is not dead. Email is not dead. I've been hearing email is going to die for about the last 10, I think since I've been in the game. So it's it's not going anywhere. It's, you know, and I think it's it's kind of almost gone full circle now, you know, even strategically, we've been talking about it, you know, list buildings probably come back even for the direct to consumer space a lot more as a, as a strategic yeah. approach for, for paid advertising. The, the money's in the list, right? It's, it's really the only thing that you can own. And we've I think we've learned that we things got really easy with Facebook. And it was so easy and it really became about pixeling. How many people could you pixel? But um, with that, that that playing field's really changed. So, you know, for us, list building has been a big part of what we do. Like we do a lot of big product launches and a lot of that's using Messenger and then driving to SMS and email anyway. But um, the importance of that, I think, is uh, it's, it's going to be it's going to become huge again for the next for the people who really thrive over the next couple of years. Yeah, yeah, I I, really, I I think it's 
now we have the renaissance of email and just yesterday i read that clavio reached uh nine billion dollars as their evaluation wow. and uh, in six months they raised five billion they doubled and i think it's also a sign um, that email marketing is still thriving so it's really interesting to see it uh, especially why there are these big changes with facebook and i think google um you know the cookie story next year it will happen mm. yeah they will, they will remove a uh, third party uh, cookies um, yeah yeah but today i want to discuss something else as the main topic which is how to build a team what you have now so you have uh with your co-founder the uh right hook uh, digital and you have more than 80 people in the team uh, when did you start the agency so d and i we started working on a couple of projects together going back uh would have been like february 2017 um so there was a couple of clients that we were just we we had neither of us had any intention of looking for a business partner and we just he right. had a couple of e-commerce brands that so were looking to work with him um he had a skill set i had a skill set we partnered up on that and you know we got three or four months down the track and just felt right it just clicked and then it was so july uh i think 5th of july 2017 was when we officially incorporated so it's um coming up to four years in, in a couple of months so it's a, we've gone from the two of us to I think 80, 84 at the moment fluctuates every few days, but um, yeah, around around that in, in just under four years. So it's it's been pretty fast growth. Yeah, yeah. Wow. Uh, before we jump into team building, so I'm really curious. Uh, so there are two founders, right? Two of you. Um, Correct. What what skill set do you have? So how do you complement each other? Now I'm reading a book. It's here on my it's here on my table. Uh, this one friend gave it gave it to me last weekend. Rocket uh, Fuel. Uh, Good book. Do you know this one? Yeah, uh, yeah. I think it's um. Is it Gino Wickman? And because he wrote Traction as well, right? Yeah, yeah, exactly. Uh, yeah. They have a library, like five books, six books, and uh, I haven't checked this book yet, really. But uh, the main topic is partnerships in business, um, as I can see it. And I'm really curious, what are your skill sets and uh, and why do you think that you complement each other very well? Yeah, absolutely. It's, it's such a good question. I think in the context, that I haven't actually read the book, but from memory, it's about having an integrator and the visionary. And I exactly. think that's like the core right. of that book, right? Exactly. Yeah. Um, so, yeah, it's interesting. So when we started out, it was D, you know, anyone who knows D is very charismatic, great communicator. Um, just a naturally very, very good salesperson, um, but also a very good marketer in his own right. Uh, so when we started out, my skill set was definitely on the marketing side, running ad accounts, um, new e-com as a business model extremely well, having been in that space and run my own business for the you know six, seven years prior to that. So um, Dee's background, his agency before that was actually a video production agency. So he's very, very strong on the creative side as well. So when we started out, Basically, between the two of us, and this was the advantage, and I think how it allowed us allowed us to move really quickly at the start. I was basically running the lead generation for us on Facebook, driving that the leads to D. He was he was the sales process, and then 
Uh, for the most part, I was doing the work on the client execution on the back end and D would help out with a bit of the, the client relationships. And that was probably like the first two or three months. Um, I think we went from zero to 20K and then 50K within within about the first four or five months. And we made our first hire. Uh, we hired a media buyer, I think, in about month three or four. Um, and then Beck, who's now our ops manager, she came in as, as an account manager at the time to just to immediately alleviate me from a lot of the client-facing work and start removing that pressure um, and just kind of kind of grew from there. Um, but, you know, as we've gone on in terms of the complementary skill sets between D and I, that's just sort of where it stemmed. I, I, was, I was always really good on the financial side, so I've sort of managed mm-hmm. the financial side of the business much more. D, very good operationally. Um, so... We've just complemented each other very well, um, and just also, I'm like I'm very good from a strategic ideation standpoint, getting things moving, and D can zoom in and zoom out really well. So he's very good at coming in and I guess implementing yep. in in a lot of ways and and fine tuning a lot of things while I could sort of move on to to the next thing. So we just naturally had a really good dynamic between each other on on that level, um, which was very fortunate. Um, but I think, you know, even even beyond that, for it to work and why it's work is is really just like I guess almost like on a a foundational personal level, you know, what yeah. where we want to both head, what what we how we view the world, and and these sort of things. Like we're always on the same page, and we're both very open minded. You know, we might come to something with a, a different opinion, but usually by the end of it, one of us can see the other person's perspective because they've just had an opinion or a perspective we haven't thought of, and we both agree that it's right. So, yeah, we I think a lot a lot of things that just work on a foundational level, and then um, as we've grown, uh, we've probably just segmented into into certain areas. These great from a cultural leadership standpoint and pulling the team together, um, which is why he's moved into that CEO role uh, and very operational while I've sort of leaned on the, on the I guess, more, I'm more on the internal marketing and sales side now mm-hmm. uh, and, and financial. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I, I uh, saw his, I watched his uh, his uh, talk on, on the Adverse Conference about culture, nice. I think last last year, in May or something, and it was. It, I learned. I learned a lot from it. He mentioned a few books. It was a really good. It was a really good presentation um, by him. Yeah. Um, so you had this quick initial growth. I mean, you are still growing very fast. But as you said, you had this big jump right at the beginning, and you started hiring your first people. So last time when we talked. Uh, just both of us or, or two of us, you mentioned that uh, the first stage was probably until like 20, 25 people mm-hmm. and that you experienced some struggles there, some big challenges. So what were those when you hit around 20, 25 people? Yeah, that was, um, you know, even, even to now, I think that was the toughest period for us. It was a real transition period going from, mm-hmm. it was, I reckon it was from around 15 people, 15 to 20 people to 40. That 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 period in there was really tough. Um, that was probably when we showed the most cracks. I mean, for the first the first part, we we had a real growth spurt. It was at the end of twenty eighteen, I believe, and we just we blamed D. He he just went on a bit of a, a, a rampaging closing 
clients across this period and we just got stretched super thin so it was great financially um, but we got stretched really thin Um, you know we didn't have a lot of the systems and processes in place to manage that as well it was just we were just taking on as much business as we could um, and that you know caused some issues in there Um, but it was you get you get to that stage and there's so many more communication points and what you need to add and change structurally once you start getting above 15 or 20 people you know you've got a big team you've got to start breaking off into smaller teams to to segment things so much more communication you need to start bringing in management and also a lot of the the functions uh, or roles within the um within our model we we changed so people that we'd hired previously as media buyers who are now playing more of a front-facing relationship role as part of that um, just weren't necessarily the right fit as well. So there was a bit of friction, um, you know, people that were the right fit before, not now, new people coming in. Um, so that's where the cultural part during there just becomes really, really important because um, as soon as you've got one or two people that just aren't the right fit, really can drag everything down. So yeah. that was that was probably... You know some of the biggest learning experiences and i'd say like what some of the mistakes was not letting people go faster that weren't the right fit um you know making some of those tougher calls a little bit quicker i think in in hindsight probably would have put us in a better position but yeah. we're, we're you know we've gone in the last let's say a bit over 12 months from from 40 to 85 uh, and i would say we're a better agency at 80 people than what we were at 40. I think we once we got through that and got our structure and everything right, we've we've really been able to sort of capitalize on that and keep improving over the last 18 months. How do you notice that somebody is not a good fit? Because what I noticed with myself and with our managers is that they are very protective, which is I, I think it's a good thing, right? Because the manager should protect uh, his or her people. I think that's good. Uh, but you know, sometimes it can go bad because you are overly protective. Maybe there is some ego involved that I hired this person, so he must be or she must be a good uh, employee. But it's not always the case. Sometimes you have to, you know, uh, just confess that this employee is not a good fit. And how how do you catch that, or or how do you find it that you know that employee shouldn't be here? Man, the ego is the enemy. It's uh, look, I've I've made people, I've hired people that haven't worked out. D's hired people that haven't worked out. We've we've all done it. You can't catch them all. Um, so I think like you've got to remove that aspect. The biggest, I, I guess, the immediate tell tell sign for me is: do they drain energy from you? Like mm-hmm. if I find that there's someone that I need to be because I don't trust because. They're, they're continually making mistakes or, you know, we've given them feedback and that's not getting improved and they're just not delivering on what they need to deliver on. That's that's definitely a warning sign. Like the team that I've got around me in the, in the, in the marketing team right now, like I cannot talk to them for two weeks and I know that they're going to get everything done and everything's going to be done at mm-hmm. the level that we want. Yeah. We obviously have multiple meetings a week, but I have that level of trust in them um, mm-hmm. and I think that's such an important thing. It's it, people, people are everything. And... The other thing you'll find yourself doing is if you are adding aspects into your systems and processes to allow for people not doing what they're meant to be doing. Like the the, 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 the A players, the good people that you need, you shouldn't really have to manage so much. Yes, they've got KPIs, you track against that, but um, 
you know, if you're adding things in there and, and rules there to, you know, stop people from doing the wrong thing or you think it's like going to disincentivize them to, to not do the wrong thing or what, whatever, then they're probably not the right person. You know, every, everyone that I think that we've got on our team at the moment, and we've had those people and we've, we've gone through that, you know, a good example, I, going back to when we were in that stage for between sort of 20 and 40 people in terms of the media buyers, we were trying to add a lot of rules and rigidity to the systems to, to try and make people all do the same thing. But what we found is when you've actually got the right people in there and you, okay, let's loosen that up a bit and say, okay, well, here's the objective. You're free to do or hit that objective however you like, but within these boundaries, mm-hmm. um, then that's where it's going to work best. Because if you have to micromanage and, and keep things super tight, that's usually an, a, an indication that the people aren't aren't necessarily the right fit. A really, really good um, video on that, if anyone wants to go away and watch it, if you go to um, go to YouTube and search the Spotify uh, cultural videos, there's two, two videos in there, really, really good video explanations of, of how mm-hmm. they do it at Spotify. And we got a lot of insights from that. Very interesting. Yeah, we will put that... Uh below the the recording uh, and everyone can uh, find the link um yeah it's really interesting and i think if you know if you have a players as you said you give them the goals and you give them the boundaries uh timeline what they cannot do and and so on but that's it they will figure it out they are creative people they will uh, have meetings together if they need anything they will let you know it's not like you have to micromanage them or, or you know, create uh, too strict boundaries and, and rules and all of that because it, it doesn't help. So that's why we started implementing. Good, 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 yeah. good, good people thrive with the autonomy. Exactly, because they get ownership, uh, yeah. they enjoy it more. Actually, if they don't have enough ownership, then they will feel stressed and, you know, it's not really my thing, it's just something i have to do and and all of these things come in um we started implementing the okr system objective and key results it's just a fancy term for setting goals basically um the high output management book i really recommend it to everyone and uh yeah. that is the other one uh, measure what matter matters i yeah, think measure what matters yeah, both, uh, both both great books. Very very high on the on the shelf in our offices as well. <laughs> so now we have this system, and we have company goals, department goals, personal goals. Uh, with each quarter, we discuss these during the quarterly assessments. Everyone can come up with their own goals, and uh, we just started implementing it uh, this month or or end, end of last month, uh, beginning of second quarter and uh, I set up the company goals with the managers and for departments together and then we gave it to everyone to every person these will be your personal goals and most people got only two three because we are we are just still learning it so we don't want to you know or overwhelm people and then I told them or we told them that yeah this is the you know one half because these are top down goals like you know, your boss um, tells you to do it, but also you can come up with your own goals. And I was surprised how many uh, people came up with how many goals by themselves and really good ones. Uh, And they are serious about it. I want to Mm. 
have more meetings with the client. I, I'm a copywriter and I never talk to the client. Now I want and and very smart and good ideas. Uh, they think about upsells, people who shouldn't actually do it, but it's a good thing. Um, so everyone is creative, want to try new things. I think I think it's a good sign. Um, and yeah, it gives them ownership and that's that's super important. Yeah, I agree. It's um, you know, and that's something we've been rolling out over the last couple of months as well. Actually, it's um, and it gives everyone direction, especially as the as the company becomes bigger, right? Like you've got an overall uh, direction that the company's trying to go with, and then each department, an individual, if they know that that's what we're driving towards, and then all those other KRs underneath are driving towards that, then that's really how you start getting that alignment and everyone pulling in the same direction, as opposed to everyone kind of just doing their own thing. Yeah. Um, and how does it look like now with 80 people? You are close to 100. Um, is there any big change in terms of, you know, man managerial levels and, and all of these things, the structure itself? Or or what do you think with the current structure? What's the number or, or the size where you can grow and then you will need a big change? Yeah. Um... Not so much big change. It's now, okay, well, we've kind of got the blueprint in terms of, okay, we're, we're, and we're split pretty evenly across Australia and the US. So we've got, um, you know, uh, two divisions. Um, we've got a regional leader that we've in, got in place or putting in place on either side and then a number of strategists underneath, probably between six and eight is like our target. And that's, I guess, one block for the for the I guess the social media team then we're building email and Google alongside that at the moment mm -hmm. um, we've got some floating copywriting support so I guess like from there is we're sort of working through are we adding service lines horizontally or you know do we want to add another layer of, of Facebook yeah. um, on top so I think at the moment it's probably more towards adding the, the additional services on. Um, and mm -hmm. I think a lot of that change was probably accelerated by the whole, um, you know, shift in the landscape with Apple and, and Facebook and, and whatnot yeah. and the importance of being more omni-channel as opposed to being so Facebook specific. Um, it was always on our radar to do that, but it's probably accelerated the push into those other areas a little bit faster than we were planning. Uh, so yeah, that's, that's kind of it at the moment. Um, I think with the current structure, we're probably, I think we comfortably get up to around 120 before we have to think, start thinking about, you know, more managerial roles in there. The hardest, the hardest thing for us usually is finding talent. That is, yeah. especially in Australia, especially in Australia, um, it's it's it, the 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 talent pool is is pretty thin. From what we find, it's um, it's really hard to find good performance-driven marketers in the who are specific in the e-commerce space. So um, yeah. it can take us a little bit of time. So I guess we're all also trying to you know work out from a, a marketing and talent acquisition standpoint how can we get that turning into a bit of a conveyor belt so we've got more talent coming to us as well. So that's a pretty big initiative for us over the next six months. Yeah, yeah. Maybe do you want to share more how how do you find talent at the moment? That's yeah, <laughs> yeah. I think at the moment, you know, it's still through, through a lot of the main channels. So you know, we're running our own ads. Um, we a lot of LinkedIn outreach naturally. Yeah. They're they're the primary channels. I think it's it's probably more that we instead of 
just saying, okay, we need to hire and going to try and hire that we've just always got talent coming in. And if they're really good, we just make room somehow. Uh, I think that's probably the approach that we're leaning towards because often, for example, it took us, I think, seven or eight months last year to find the right Google PPC person that we were happy with in mm-hmm. Australia. So you sometimes that can really throw your growth plans out if you can't, you know, get someone in within, you know, a specified time period, especially when it takes that long. Um, so there's a few things. So there's, and there's two parts, I think. There's, there's bringing people in who are experienced and talented and can basically come in, get um, onboarded and integrated and hit the ground running, so to speak. And then there's also, which is probably a next year project, what can we get in place in terms of a bit of an, an internal internship uh, university type thing where we can you know, mm-hmm. take kids out of uni and train them up? You know, they've got the talents. Um, you know, I've, I've, I've brought Miguel in, in the internal marketing team who's fresh out of college in the US, done a stellar job, just understands social media, is really savvy with organic. Um, so how can we find more of that talent, bring it in early and train it up? Um, so that that's sort of where I think we, we need to go to next to really get that conveyor belt going that we've got more control of it because yeah as i said like going out and just trying to trying to find talent by job like ads it can be very unpredictable in terms of you know how yeah. when and how you can bring people in yeah I, I i totally agree and uh yeah we i'm sure you know you hire more people than we do we hired i think around 11 uh 12 in the last five months and uh we rely heavily on on linkedin ads actually mm. and linkedin yeah. outreach and there is good talent there um but still um sometimes we had crazy situations like uh, we need a designer by tomorrow <laughs> and <laughs> we reached out to all of all of uh, our partners and and everyone and uh, actually we found a really good one in one day uh, amazing and now she's the head of design so ah, nice after two months, which is she, that's she's beautiful. Um, it's good, good when you find those diamonds in the rough. Yeah, yeah, but you know, it's it's not predictable, so you need systems uh, for sure. And what I also just told our head of culture is that uh, it should be like sales. So you continuously look for talent, not just when you need them, just like with clients. Yeah. Um, yeah. Because if there is a diamond, then you know unpolished diamond then let's hire that person as a trainee or something um but it's not like you just need someone and and hire uh, only them so so yeah could, could, yeah i could, couldn't agree more and that's you know in terms of you know i run the marketing department here um internally and you know your marketing department should have two objectives one is client acquisition and the other yeah. is um is talent acquisition you can't just focus on on bringing business in like you've really got to focus on okay well how are we going to market to to people who and attract them here because we you need if you want to deliver the best results you've got to hire the best talent that's the only way you can really do it so you've really got to make sure that that initiates um you know at the front of what you're doing from a marketing standpoint as well yeah 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 people are key especially in the business what we do um they are everything agents literally everything <laughs> yeah um, Scott, uh, thank you for sharing all of these um, with us today. Maybe is there, uh, you know, anything else like one quick tip for this year, rest of the year? What would you say to e-commerce business owners as an advice? Oh, so to e-commerce business owners, I think 
really just look at look at your your from a marketing perspective i think the biggest thing that needs to happen uh, the biggest shift that needs to happen is really viewing your marketing spend to your overall revenue not getting too caught up in the data that's within the platforms because it's it's all over the place at the moment it's you know restricted amounts of data coming in it doesn't necessarily reflect the performance i mean we're still looking within facebook and google and optimizing i guess within there because that's what you've got to work with um but you know making sure that you're looking at the bigger picture and saying well okay return on ad spend looks like it's down in facebook but overall we're still doing pretty well if we increase our budget by 25 percent is revenue going up by about 25 percent yes okay then i would almost disregard a little bit of what what the facebook accounts are saying um you know if, if, if you're not thinking at that higher level with how you're approaching your marketing budget in particular i think it's where you know people can make bad business business decisions and stop spending money on advertising where it's really the lifeblood of their business so you just don't want to be making those mistakes so i think that that's probably the biggest thing especially over the next three to six months um when there's so many unknowns still. Like we just don't know where this is all going to end up with Facebook uh, from a reporting standpoint, from a performance standpoint. Just try and focus on the, the making the best decisions you can to keep things moving forward until things stabilize a little bit. Yeah, I, I totally agree. And just recently, we we both we also had a few conversations with clients where you know they they are adopting the the reporting Facebook, Google, Clavio. Uh, ch- let's change the attribution window in the email software and, and they try to play with things and they think it will get better and it doesn't get better. <laughs> so the, attri- the attribution model is not going to change anything. It's just telling you a different picture of, of what's happening. Yeah, yeah I, I, think that's, I, think, I think that's a good point. Like, yeah. Uh, yeah. At least understanding the differences between the attribution models between the platforms and not thinking so much of this platform did this and this platform did this and that. They all work together. You know, I went and saw an ad on Facebook. I That's where I first saw it. I didn't convert. I went and searched for them on Google and then I went to the site and then I signed up for email. I got an email. I didn't convert. I went and then back to Google and clicked on it six days later and converted. Google Analytics is going to say it's from Google Shopping. I'm just sitting here saying, well, I found it on Facebook and you sent me an email which drove me back. So... I think the mindset that there's one channel that's responsible for everything, you really need to get past that and understand that, you know, it's, it really all works together in that customer journey and just trying to, you know, put your money where it is driving the best ROI. Yeah, exactly. And my ultimate, uh, you know, my, my last thing, what I t- tell people, if they are still doubtful, then you have the shutdown test. So anytime you can just shut down the channel and see what happens. And then yeah. everyone goes, no, 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 don't do it. So <laughs> that, that email that comes the next day, switch it back on, switch it back on. <laughs> exactly. Um, yeah, so thanks, Scott, again. Uh, I really enjoyed and I hope the listeners as well. Um, if anyone uh, wants to find you and your agency, where they should go. Absolutely. So we've got a pretty big Facebook group over at uh, Growth and Greatness e-commerce, so you can find that. Uh, and then for our agency, obviously at righthookdigital.com. Um, and you know, we pretty put a fair bit of content out on Instagram on our Instagram handle at, at righthook digital as well. Oh, wow. I, I, I need to check that. I didn't know it. Uh, the, the Instagram one. Uh, yeah, we've been, we've been doubling down on the, on the organic content this year. Mm-hmm. Wow. 
Um, yeah, so thank you, Scott, again, and thanks for everyone who listened to us today. Every Thursday, we are coming out with a new episode, and we have a lot of live stream on YouTube, LinkedIn, and uh, Facebook as well. So stay tuned. Uh, thank you, and have a, have a great day. My pleasure. Thank you, Daniel. Hope you enjoyed this episode of the Ecom Show podcast. If you want to learn more about e-commerce, retention marketing, check out our Facebook group called Top 3% E-commerce Email Marketing or check out our website, thebudaimedia.com. The show is brought to you by the team of Budai Media. See you in our next episode and don't forget our goal. Grow your e-commerce business together. Thank you.